Oliver Callan on RTE Radio 1. Now, where do I want to go to next? I want to go to John Galliano. He was the world's most famous fashion designer for time. He was outrageous, bombastic, intolerable, brilliant all at once. Then he exploded in a Paris rant about Hitler. Videos shot on mobile phones brought him crashing down to earth in 2011. Where has he been since? Well, Kevin MacDonald has made high and low John Galliano, and he brings it uh, this week to the Dublin International Film Festival. You'll know Kevin as the director of The Last King of Scotland, also from Touching the Void, both of them Oscar winners. He's done an amazing job again here. He's on the line. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, how are you doing? This, in terms of cancel culture, uh, the fall of John Galliano, it's virtually prehistoric in many ways, isn't it? It is. That's one of the reasons, actually, I was so interested in it, because it's one of the very first people who's cancelled because of something that's shot on a mobile phone. I think, what when did the, the, the iPhone came out? In like 2008, and this happened in 2011. So, But what's amazing is there's so much footage of him at the time of this particular incident when he made these this anti-Semitic rant and around that time. So people were already kind of using it to film celebrities with. And, this, I mean, it's an incredible moment. Uh, he's like the original person to be cancelled in in this way. Yeah, I think that's that, that that's it. And I, was, I, I first came up with the idea for this film during lockdown and I was just reading all of these stories about Hollywood people who were being cancelled. Yes. And I was thinking... What happens to you after you're cancelled? How do you come back? How do we as a society, in a kind of largely post-religious society, how, do, how does the mechanism of forgiveness work? And um, somebody introduced me to Galliano and said, you know, he would be an interesting person because he, this incident happened 10 years before, he's still kind of persona non grata in certain circles, um, but he's also come back and, and he's come back working for this very cool label called Maison Margiela. But Maison Margiela's kind of, uh, USP in a way is that it's all very anonymous. You never see the designer, and of course that suits you if you've been if you've been cancelled. <laughs> so, um, but then I got in touch with John, and really, the, you know, film that started off as being a, about the idea of cancel culture just became really a film about this character and his extraordinary story and how he ended up having this big meltdown. The key to, obviously, your documentary are your interviews with him, and they're just so intimate. Uh, I felt he was almost in the room. Uh, you chose, obviously, to do that, particularly have him looking down the lens using that technique. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that in some ways, the film is a, a kind of confession by him. Mm -hmm. I suppose I did think of calling the film The Confession to John Galliano. <laughs> but actually, um, if it's not a confession, it's something like being in court with him. You know, he's like the witness on the stand. Yeah. And I think I wanted the audience to be feeling like they are making a judgment of him. They are looking him in the eyes and thinking, do I trust you? Do, you know, do I believe the emotion that you're giving off about this? I think it makes for a, you know, really compelling a really compelling interview but also it means it's a film which I think audiences come out of and they're debating it they're arguing over what do I think of him is he is he somebody who should be forgiven shouldn't he be forgiven do I believe what he says about it, having had a blackout you know he can't remember what happened because he was a, he was a blackout drinker um, but at the same time I think you know you're forced to confront the humanity of this person and we're all used to think these days to judging everyone and writing them off but actually of course even the greatest sinner is a human being and um, you will grow to find him charismatic and likeable and brilliant. But you, I guess, are confronted with the idea of, well, maybe I can think that he's all those things, but also think he said something unforgivable. How do I cope with that, mm -hmm. that dilemma in a way? 
I gather you, when you were interviewing him, it, it's quite at length, multiple days, I believe, and there's no PR people or he has no spin doctors around him at the time? No, it's one of the things I really, really admired about him and obviously liked about making the film was that usually, obviously, when people are in this kind of situation, they have PR coming out of their ears and they have crisis PR people in the room with them whispering in their ear or, or stopping the interview and saying, what about this, what about that? I don't want to go down that line of questioning. With John, everything was done directly, just me phoning him up and saying, oh, can we meet you next Sunday at your house and do some interviewing? He would say, yes or no, I'm around, I'm not around. And he was just really trying to be himself. There was no intermediaries. There was no sense of caution about anything. There was nothing off limits. And just that, the, the simple humanity of that is really, I think, striking. And I think particularly when we're so used now to these celebrity films like, you know, the Beckham film, um, which are controlled by the celebrities, you know, made by, their, yeah. made by their production companies to make them look fantastic. And they do make them look fantastic and they're very entertaining. <laughs> but, but I think it's, there's something about, you know, documentary should not be um, from the point of view of the subject of the documentary. I think, you know, it's old fashioned. It's an abused term, documentary, in that regard, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, this is, is definitely objective. It must have been difficult to maintain that objective lens having spent so much time with them. Yeah, of course. You know, you create a human connection with people and that's that's natural. And I guess the audiences take, take that into account. But it, I think the, uh, the thing I've been struck with with this film is every time I've shown it at a festival, it's coming out in cinemas in about three weeks, but it's playing some festivals before that. But And we have the most incredible arguments, ding-dongs, discussions, debates afterwards. And a lot of people have said to me, this is, I haven't, I haven't discussed a film like this um, with my friends afterwards uh, in a long, long, long time. I haven't yeah. discussed it in this really intense way because I think it brings up so many of the issues around that we're all that we're in the ether at the moment, not just cancel culture, but also forgiveness and the notion of how do you forgive people? And obviously the notion of anti-Semitism, where does that come from? And obviously, particularly at the moment with what's going on in Israel and Gaza, anti-Semitism is rife. Yes, you've, why, you've landed why does this... That, subject at such an amazing time. Can can you remind people just how huge John Galliano was? Because the footage of his catwalk performances are quite astonishing. Yeah, he was the enfant terrible of the British fashion scene in the 80s and early 90s. He won the British Fashion Designer of the Year three times, I think, when he was still under under 26. And uh, each time he won it, he would then probably go bankrupt the next year because he was a hopeless businessman. And, <laughs> and Britain really wasn't able to, to sustain, you know, really creative designers. There wasn't the, the sort of industry or the backing. So um, he was taken in 1994 to Paris and he became the first British designer in over 100 years to head up a big couture house. And that was Givenchy. And he was there for a year. And then he was given the big job, which is head designer at Dior, which is obviously, you know, pretty much one of the two or three most influential, most famous design houses in the world. And he was there for uh, 15 years. And during that time, that's the boom in the fashion industry. You know, fashion turned from being this kind of uh, thing that was for a few old rich ladies (laughs) <laughs> and um, and maybe a few movie stars into being something that everybody aspired to wearing. And if you couldn't wear the clothes, then you'd wear the you'd you'd get the lipstick or you'd get the perfume, whatever. And the, and, and they started selling this dream on global scale. And the Chinese got involved, Japanese got involved, and it become obviously now you know Bernard Arnault, who owns both Givenchy and uh, and Dior and many many other brands, 
Um, he's the richest man in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's how huge this industry is. And John, and then Alexander McQueen, who came just a year or two after him and took his job at Givenchy, they were the kind of the um, entertainment factor at the front of his huge this huge industry that he was creating. They were the people who were talked about in the press. You know, they did, they were scandalous. They were outrageous. They 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 dressed people in crazy ways. They these shows that were like cost millions of dollars, millions of dollars were talked about for days and days and you know and john at the end of every show would come out himself in an outrageous costume and to take the applause of the world everyone on their feet and i mean it was absolutely massive when you see a fashion show today you know you're seeing something that's a you know a really a pale comparison to what what was going on in the heyday in the 90s and the early 2000s when when, when john and Alexander mcqueen were in there in their prime. It's incredible just to capture the excess of, of that wealth in the 90s. His, he was helping to generate annual profits, it says, of £588 million pounds, uh, a year for Dior. So he he was just, um, he was an outrageous character. And then that moment happens where it all comes crashing down. Yeah, and that that what the film does is that it shows you for the first sort of half this incredible talent, this incredible life. There's also some pain in his personal life Um which explains a lot, um, but he develops, like a lot of people do, he develops a, when they're in those positions of stress and celebrity, um, he developed a, a, a terrible drink and drugs habit. It's a familiar story, you know, in some ways this story is, uh, it, it, the first half of it is quite familiar. It's the, it's the, it's the Amy Winehouse or the Whitney Houston films, you know, it's, 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 rise from nowhere incredible success and then a crash to the ground which usually ends in in death which is what happened obviously to to, to the those two singers but also to alexander mcqueen yeah um who was who was john's great uh competitor i guess but um the strange thing about this film and about john's story is that it has a fourth act it's not just those three acts it's a fourth act which is the inconvenient and embarrassing act where you have to explain what you did and you have to go on and think, well, how do I live my life now? How do I how do I explain to everyone and how do I get forgiveness? Um, and so that, I think, is the thing that ultimately made this quite hard film to make. It's, it's a kind of awkward fourth act. It's an awkward bit. Oh, he should he should be dead, this guy. He treated himself so badly. Yeah. He behaved so badly, but he's not. And so the last sort of third of the film is really about what happened after this. And it's we talked to John gave us access to everybody in his life, you know, his family, his therapists, his addiction counsellor. His lawyer, everybody speaks in the film. Kate Moss, Naomi Campbell, all these people speak in the film. And so I think it's about as rounded a, um, an image of somebody that you that, that you can get. It, I mean, interviewed with people we wouldn't uh, see popping up in documentaries like Anna Wintour and, of course, Mr Arnold himself. I mean, I presume the name mm. John Galliano made it easier to open these usually unopenable doors. Well, to an extent, but of course also it was quite... <laughs> for some people, it's quite sensitive and tricky. Yeah. Um, they don't want to be associated with him. And there were people who said no. But then I was surprised a lot of people like Charlize Theron, mm. or as I said, Naomi Campbell, those people who, who, Penelope Cruz, they all wanted to be a part of it because they all adored John personally and in a way put put themselves a little bit of heart, uh, the, the way of some risk here because, yeah. you know, it's it's um, it's not always a, a, a good thing to be to be seen to be supporting someone who's who's looked at as an anti-Semite. 
But I think they all feel so strongly that this stat was not the real job. And ultimately, that's the question that I think really fascinated me the most was, you know, how do we ever know really what's going on inside somebody else's mind? When somebody says something, does something awful, how can we ever know why they did it, why they said it, whether they're really sorry about it afterwards or whether they should be forgiven? You know, you don't know. Everybody else is a kind of is a, is a black box. Mm. And, and, and so there's a kind of mystery story about the film in the end. Yes. And I think one of the decisions you make, uh, it's very creative, it's a brilliant decision, was to intersperse his life story with clips from a 1927 silent film that he adored. Tell us about that. Yeah, so so the very first time I, I talked to John, we were speaking about the inf- you know, influences on his early work and he, he went to the St. Martin's Art School and... Um, I was saying, you know, what what sort of things did you did did you draw inspiration from? And he said, oh, there was this film, Abelgonsi's Napoleon, this sort of epic, um, silent movie from 1927, which I happen to have seen and really loved. It's it's famously inventive, cinematically inventive, and it's it was actually, you know, I think they're restoring it again now, the French Cinematheque, and there's going to be like an eight-hour version coming out <laughs> of <in> Cannes, <laughs> Cannes this year. Um, but this but this film, he saw the, an earlier restoration that's the great film historian Kevin Brownlow did with an orchestra and it was on, on, on at the South Bank Centre here in London. All the way through his career, John has drawn on this influence. And not only that, but he has dressed like Napoleon so many times. At the end of his shows, when he went out onto the catwalk himself, yeah. he'd often dress up as Napoleon or wear Napoleon T-shirts. So I began to think, ah, oh, there's some connection there between him and Napoleon. And, and that film offers a kind of entertaining counterpoint, I guess, to a serious story. And you see, his, you see John, um, uh, you know, John's story being reflected in the story of the young Napoleon who, like John, who came from Gibraltar and was a small man who felt himself to be an outsider, dark-skinned in the north, you know. he And he's a gay man, obviously, John, and he was bullied terribly at school, and Napoleon was bullied when he was at school for having a funny accent coming from the south and being shorter than everyone else. And all this. <laughs> so I thought, oh, there's a, there is, a, and, and they both met their Waterloo, didn't they? Um, and I thought, and I thought there's, a, there's, an int- there's an interesting parallel and a way to kind of escape from the kind of plodding predictability of a lot of documentaries where yes. you, you know, you're no, caught no. in a world of bit of archive interview, bit of archive interview, to sort of give it a little bit of the, the smell of magic that John brings to his fashion shows, I suppose. Well, there's just great um, debate around as well, particularly because he's a British designer who makes it in the snobbery of Paris. And you also have yes. very different British attitudes towards Napoleon uh, as the, compared to the French attitudes toward Napoleon. It was, <laughs> it has an extra layer. Exactly. Uh, before I let yeah, you go, exactly. I, I want to yeah, ask you actually just about, because you directed Jodie Foster only recently in The Mauritanian, uh, which is a film yes. with a, a great conscience about the, the less inspected aspect of America's place in the world. You must be really enjoying her 2024 life story, Jodie yes, Foster. Yes, I mean, you know, um, Jodie is a great human being and it was a, such a joy to work with. You imagine she hadn't worked for a number of years. Her mother had been quite ill. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first met her, um, her mother had recently passed away and I think she felt liberated by that and she wanted to, she said, I want to do for the first time in my life, I want to do a film that is just not about money, not about Hollywood. I want to do something that's about thing I believe in. And she was very interested in the story of, 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 of an inmate in Guantanamo and the injustice he faced and the difficulty of him getting out. And so she plays the lawyer 
um, uh, in, in the film based on a real character, Nancy Hollander. Yeah. And the great Tahar Rahim, who's an Algerian-French actor who you might have seen in A, a Prophet and The Serpent, that BBC show, The Serpent, about the serial killer. Yeah. Um, he, plays, he plays the inmate. And I was so intimidated. You imagine Jodie, she's, she's directed many great films. Yeah. She's been in you know, since a, as a kid, you know, she's been acting since she was three, I think. And so it's quite intimidating. But actually, I've never worked with an actor who was so um, generous and responsive to notes. You just need to say right. one thing to do. She wouldn't, she wouldn't argue with you. She would just say, yes, I'll do that. And she would do it. And, you know, just an amazing collaborator. And I'm so pleased for her. You know, she's Oscar nomination. Unfortunately, she didn't get an Oscar nomination for the Mauritanian. She got, she won a Golden Globe for it, but she didn't get the Oscar nomination. Political choice, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, a difficult but, one. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but, but no, I'm, I'm really pleased for her. And of course, she's having the, the great resurgence in True, in True Detective. Incredible. But I think Incredible. the amazing thing is, you know, that is, uh, so few people have a kind of third act to their career as an actor. Yeah. She's been a char- famous child actor. She was an Oscar, two-time Oscar winning um, adult actor. And now yeah. she's a... You know, an older woman, should we say? She's in her she's in her sixties, yeah. and she's having she, a whole new career playing these really strong, tough, assertive women. Um, uh, uh, you know, a cop and a and, and a swimming trainer mm-hmm. in Nyad. Um, so yeah, she's she's fabulous, and um, um, and my fingers are really crossed for her. More relevant than ever. Uh, do you prefer making documentaries now over your over feature films? Are you you doing both still? I love I love doing both. I mean, that Mauritanian was a couple of years ago. Um, I've been trying to get a film off the ground. It's just harder than ever to get films off the ground. You really? know, uh, particularly things that have got a political side to them. I think uh, uh, that's American finance, is it? Is that the issue? No, it's American finance a little bit, but I think just cinema is in crisis. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, like everybody who's a cinema lover, that it's going to come back more. Yeah. But films have not been doing well at the cinema. There's been there's been too much. Too much made by the streamers and you know television series and that kind of thing, so they're, they're running out of money. Um, wow. So yeah, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, a movie crisis at the moment. But hopefully that's gonna that's gonna come back. And I, I've got a couple of movies in the in, irons in the fire that hopefully will will take off the, later this year. Great. Well, we'll keep an eye out for those. In the meantime, we'll do our bit in Ireland and we'll get to the Dublin International Film Festival. High and low, John Galliano. It's going to be at the Lighthouse Cinema on the 25th of February at half past seven there and opens the cinemas on the 8th of March. Kevin MacDonald, it's been a pleasure. Lovely talking to you. Likewise. Take care. Bye-bye. 51551 is our text. Thank you. Email oliver at rte.ie 